0: This is Kendra Conner, worship leader at Christ-Centered Church, and you are listening to Christ-Centered Cast. Exodus chapter 17. We're going to be in Exodus 17 tonight. That may seem familiar, and it, it actually is because we were in Exodus 15 last week. So a couple chapters over. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father God, as we dedicate this time to you, the time of diving into your word, of digging in deeply, I pray that you would help us to learn what you would have us to know and help us to apply what we've learned. And God, I pray as tonight we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you too would use that time in our lives to recalibrate us spiritually so that we may be in union and fellowship with one, one another and with you, Father. And it's in your Son, our Lord and Savior's name we pray tonight. Amen. Amen. So, this last week or so, about six days ago, if memory serves, we remembered an event that occurred back in 2001 on September 11th, when our country was attacked by outside forces, and the freedom and safety of our country was threatened. This, though, was not the first time in our history this took place. Way back in 1814, on August 24th, America was attacked by British forces. So much so that they managed to enter Washington to set fire to the United States Capitol, the President's Mansion, and other public buildings in the area. The local militia that was stationed there, as well as the President, James Madison, and his wife, Dolly, barely escaped with their lives. With some bolstered confidence, the British then decided to move from Washington down to Baltimore, which at that time was its third largest city. They were going to attack In the harbor, and at 6.30 a.m. on September 13th, Admiral Cochrane's ships began a 25-hour bombardment of the fort in Baltimore. It was said that rockets whistled through the air and burst into flame wherever they struck. All throughout the night, however, Major Armistead of the American forces continued to hold the fort, and they refused to surrender. 25 hours of having rockets blow up around you. All night long, they fought and held the fort. By dawn, the British had given up hope of taking that city. And at 7.30 a.m. on the morning of September 14th, Admiral Cochrane called an end to the bombardment, and the British fleet withdrew. This proved to be a turning point in the war. The Smithsonian Institute says, because the British attack had coincided with the heavy rainstorm, Fort McHenry had flown its smaller storm flag throughout the battle. But at dawn, as the British began to retreat, Major Armistead ordered his men to lower the storm flag and replace it with the great garrison flag. As they raised the flag, the troops fired their guns and played Yankee Doodle in celebration of their victory. Waving proudly over the fort, the banner could be seen for miles around, as far as a ship anchored eight miles down the river where an American lawyer named Francis Scott Key had spent an anxious night watching and hoping for a sign that the city and the nation might be saved. When he saw by the dawn's early light of September 14th, 1814, that the American flag soared above the fort, he knew that Fort McHenry had not surrendered. And moved by the sight, he began to compose a poem on the back of a letter that he was carrying. This poem would then go on to become the song, The Star-Spangled Banner. The Star-Spangled Banner, of course, has been a beloved song over the years for our country. It held special significance during the Civil War, and by the 1890s, the military had adopted the song for ceremonial purposes, requiring it to be played at the raising and lowering of colors. In 1917, both the Army and Navy designated the song as a national anthem for ceremonial purposes. We see that the U.S. eventually became the U.S. national anthem, and on March 3, 1931, Congress finally passed, signed into law by Herbert Hoover, that it would become our U.S national anthem, over a hundred years after that fateful morning. There are a couple of interesting statistics associated with the original flag, which is up there. Its original size was 30 feet by 42 feet, so just think about how big that is, and what we're accustomed to seeing when we see flags and banners and things like that. 30 feet by 42 feet. It now, though, it was only currently 30 feet by 34 feet. It has 15 stars and 15 stripes, one star has been cut out. And when we think about this flag and what it represents, it was a banner symbolizing victory that America had rallied around and continues to to this day. Much in the same way, God also wants to be a banner of victory that his people rally around. This is the fact that he reveals when Moses says, God is Jehovah Nissi, meaning the Lord is my banner following the defeat of the Amalekites. At this particular point in the biblical account with Moses and his people, it is, of course, Exodus 17. Last week we saw Exodus 15. As the children of Israel had come through the Red Sea, they were wandering in the wilderness. They came to a place where they didn't have any uh, water they could drink. The water was bitter. But God told Moses to throw a log into the water, and it became sweet water at that point. And the people then moved on to some springs. Now, here we are again, some time has gone by, and the people of Israel continue to journey and they find themselves uh, at Riphidim. And there is no water, or I'm sorry, right before that, right before Riphidim, they were at another place where they were wondering where they were going to get water again. Last week, of course, I mentioned there were two other times where they needed food and water that God provided. This was one of them. The people's short memory had forgotten God's deliverance through the Red Sea and forgotten that he had taken and turned the bitter water sweet. So they're complaining again. They're threatening to attack Moses. And Moses doesn't know what he's going to do. God coming through again as the provider that we have seen and the healer that we saw last week told Moses to strike a water and delivered water to the people. Interestingly, though, that passage, which immediately precedes this one, so we're starting in verse 8 tonight, but in verse 7, in the previous passage, we find God's people asking an important question, which leads us into the passage tonight. They ask the question: "Is the Lord among us or not?" This was the question on the lips of God's people: "Is the Lord among us or not?" Because even after all they'd experienced and everything that God had done for them, for them, they still were questioning whether God was in their midst and whether He was among them. What well, we find is we begin in verse eight that in this passage, God is about to answer that very question for his people regarding whether or not he is among them. So where this account picks up, we find that Israel is at Rephidim. And apparently there's some kind of a, there's about to be a war that's going to kick off between God's people and the people of Amalek. A little bit of history on that. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Now, for those of you who paid attention in Sunday school, you know Jacob and Esau were rival brothers because Jacob, Jacob had decided to get uh, his, his significance in the line of the patriarchy through tricking his brother into getting the birthright. And so Esau was, he had a beef with him about that, about him taking the birthright. And they were at odds. They were enemies for quite a long time. Eventually, they came to a sense of peace or an agreement. They weren't going to attack each other anymore. And there was peace for quite some time. A couple of generations had gone by where they were not at war. Well, Amalek's people, the Amalekites, were nomadic people, and they more or less lived by traveling around and stealing and pillaging and attacking people. Well, they came across God's people one day and decided it would be a good idea to attack them. Apparently, Amalek wasn't listening to the stories that his grandfather told them about how you don't attack Israel. So, nonetheless, Amalek decides that he and his people are going to attack God's people, and there is apparently some kind of a warning whether Amalek and his people issued a threat and told them, hey, you either give us all of your things or we're going to attack and kill you, Uh, or he'd see them coming on the horizon. Whatever the case is, they had a little bit of time, apparently, because Moses is able to tell Joshua, hey, I need you, Joshua, as the military leader, to go and gather some men together to go and fight the Amalekites. Now, we have to be careful when we visualize this that we're not thinking of a bunch of trained men who are ready for battle and Joshua is just going to pick the best ones. That was not the case at all. We're talking about a bunch of untrained men who are traveling with their families after being slaves in Egypt and were most likely not trained in military art beyond what maybe Joshua had the chance to teach them as they walked and talked. That's really the way it shook out. But Moses, by faith, tells Joshua, hey, go and get some guys together who are able-bodied and can potentially fight back against the Amalekites. So they're they're facing superior odds. He tells Joshua, though, he says, look, go get the guys to fight for us, and I'm going to go stand on the hill in the morning with the staff of God in my hand, which, of course, we know from the other accounts in Exodus was the symbol of God's presence with his people. God used that to perform many miracles as the uh, Israelites were being freed from Egypt Turned it into a snake and various other things that he did with the staff. So he says, I'm going to hold the staff, the presence of God, in my hand and raise it up. And well, I'll do it and we'll have victory. So Joshua does as he tells him to do. He goes and gathers the men to go to fight Amalek. And while he's fighting with Amalek, Moses goes up to the top of the hill. And he takes a couple guys with him. He takes Aaron and his brother-in-law, Her. So Tim, his brother, and his brother-in-law are up there. And Moses holding up the staff in his hands. And it says that whenever he's able to hold the staff up in his hands, and I was actually going to have all of you hold your hands up for a while, just to see how long we could get with that, to see what it was like. And I was going to tell her in a quick snap a picture for the website. I'm joking. But, um, <laughs> but my point was that I wanted you to be able to experience what it was like to try to hold your hands up in your own strength. Because that's essentially what could be happening here. So Moses is holding his hands up. He's holding the rod of God up into the air, in order to, uh, in obedience to God, to bring about victory. And it says that whenever he does, that God's people are victorious. But whenever his hands drop, whenever they lower, the Amalekites gain the advantage in battle. We do see, though, that even though Moses was most likely a strong guy, I mean, he was a much older gentleman. He was in his 80s when he received the call from God to go free God's people from Egypt. But at that point, age was even more of a number than it is now. I mean, just people were just built differently in the Bible. So even though he was a pretty strong guy, even at that age, he got tired. Which, if I'd had you guys hold your hands up for about 20 minutes, you probably would get tired too. Well, as he gets tired, we see that Aaron and her grab a rock. And they're like, okay, you just need to sit down. So they have him sit down, most likely on a low rock, so that they can then help him hold his arms up. They're physically going to help him hold his arms up while he's sitting down on this rock, and as he does this, God's people continue to win. They continue to be victorious over Amalek. It says so there was one. Aaron was on one side; her was on the other, and they held his hands steady until the going down of the sun. So they go up in the morning. He's holding his arms up all day long until the sun goes down on the same day while he has two other strong guys helping him literally physically hold his arms up for him if they fall. Now imagine that again, if you had your hands up and I had you hold them up for even 10-20 minutes. That's not all day long until the sun goes down from the early morning. That's exhausting, but we see that God brings about victory through this. As they hold his hands up, and he holds his hands up, and he holds the presence of God in his hands into the air, we see Joshua overwhelms Amalek and his people with the sword. Well, God then tells Moses that it needs to be commemorated, that this needs to be remembered. It says, the Lord says to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Meaning, grab something, you're going to need to write this down, because you're going to need to make sure that Joshua always remembers this day. And he remembers the important things about this day. And he remembers that ultimately now, Amalek and the Amalekites are officially God's enemies forever. Again, there was this, this peace that had occurred briefly between Jacob, Jacob and Esau, but it was now broken when Esau's family attacked God's people. He says, write his as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Make sure Joshua always remembers this, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. However, additionally, Moses builds an altar and calls the altar, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And when he says that, it's as though this imagery we get is holding the staff of God in his hands. It's as though, Moses says, it's as though I was touching the very throne of God. And I'm in his presence. Don't miss that that poetry, that imagery there that's being communicated. He speaks of being so close to God and God being in the midst of his people and so close to him that he could touch him. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we get this image of what's happened here. And in the midst of this battle where Moses is holding up the staff of God, he's holding the very presence of God up before his people so they would see this and be victorious by his power. Moses says, that staff is the very presence of God, the throne of God, and it is a banner by which my people rally around in order to find victory. And that's why he calls him Jehovah Nissi, the Lord Is my banner. When I think about the battles of life that we face, because yes, we're not fighting attacking armies for our survival, however, we are fighting other enemies, and there are other issues and struggles that we're going through, whether they be with other people in relationships, or our health, or our finances, or our future, or whatever it is, we all experience battles that we fight each and every day. They may not all be the same, and it might be easy for us to be comparative with them, but at the end of the day, if you're in a battle, that's your battle, and it's a difficult one. It doesn't really matter what the other people are fighting and what they're doing, other than that we should be showing them the fruit of the Spirit in our interactions with them, no matter what they or we are encountering battle-wise. But as we go through these battles, it can be very tempting for us to decide to try to take those on alone. To feel isolated in them. To feel like no one else is going to understand or be able to help us. And it's just something that we have to try to figure out how to do on our own. We can get caught in that mentality. And that's actually exactly where Satan would like us to be. Because when we are isolated and by ourselves and we're easy prey for Satan. And it would be very tempting for us to try to win these battles in our lives on our own. But as I look at this text, I think it's very interesting that Moses, going up on that hill, even though he believed with all the faith in the world that God was going to do what he needed to do and what he wanted to do that day as he told him to raise that staff into the air, he still takes a couple of guys with him. He takes a couple of guys with him. He doesn't go alone. He knows the job that he has to do. He knows the battle that he has to fight. And even though the people are on the ground fighting with the actual swords and weapons and most likely a lot of makeshift weapons because it's a bunch of nomadic people, he knows even though they're fighting down there, the battle that he is fighting up on that hill is on behalf of the name of God. He doesn't go alone, though. I also find it interesting as we look at this account and we see that he doesn't go up on that hill alone. We find that they have all the faith in the world that Moses is going to be able to do this and yet when things get too difficult for him to actually do that part of it, they get a rock for him to sit on. It wasn't premeditated that he was not going to be able to do it. They believed that he would seemingly. The rock was an afterthought. And yet God used that rock as well as those guys in order to help him have victory that day. Because when God wants to bring victory into our lives, yes, while he can work supernaturally, and he can in times does give people supernatural strength, oftentimes he uses other people in our lives to help hold us up. We have to be very careful not to allow ourselves To be tempted into trying to fight the battles alone. To believe that we, in and of ourselves, are strong enough to accomplish whatever it is. Or to overcome or survive whatever it is that we have to face. Additionally, not only is it tempting to try to face those battles of life alone. When we're entrenched in the midst of those battles. We can forget or lose sight of the Lord in the midst of it. We can get tunnel vision when we're dealing with those things whether it's our relationships or our job or or church, finances, health, whatever it is, we can get so tunnel-visioned in the midst of those problems and struggles that not only do we try to do them on our own, we also can forget the importance of realizing that God is there. We forget His presence. We lose sight of who He is and where He is in the midst of it. Even after we've seen Him give us victory in other areas in our life in the past, we become like God's people who get delivered through a bunch of water and then get given water and then even after that, wonder where the water is going to come from. God clearly has this water thing on lock and yet they still wondered what was going to happen and whether or not they were going to get it. And we can become like that too in the midst of our struggles and trials and battles that we fight in life where we just forget everything that God's already done and that he wants to do in us and in our circumstances. We forget that we need other people, and we forget that God is in the midst. So what do we do about that when we're facing those battles, those trials, those struggles, like God's people were experiencing against Amalek that day? We have to realize that the Lord does, in fact, want to use others to hold us up during those battles of life. I'm not one who likes to jump around in Scripture, but I do want to give you some verses of encouragement to really see what, how God wants to use other people in our lives to encourage us and strengthen us. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5 and 6, Paul writes about his struggles on his missionary journeys, and when he arrives in Macedonia in verse 5, he writes, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were beaten down, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul takes a second to recognize that even though they were beaten down, they were afflicted, they were getting assaulted by forces within and without, God used the presence of Titus in his life to strengthen and encourage him when he needed it most. Because Paul wasn't in it alone. Acts two forty four and 45, even at the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, that tells us Luke writes, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So we see even at the beginning of the church that God was using his people in the lives of other people in order to strengthen and encourage them during the battles that they were facing. In this case, it was financial hardship and need. And he was using his people. God could have opened the skies and dropped the money down from the heavens. And yet he used other believers to strengthen and encourage and hold up his people. Paul tells us, we hear from Paul again in Galatians chapter 6, about the importance of helping one another when we're in life's battles and we're fighting. Galatians 6.2 tells us, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ, what's he talking about there? Well, we're told Jesus redefines the law when he says it's to love God, first and foremost, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second part is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. That loving others should cause us, motivate us to bear the burdens of others, as Aaron and her were up on that hill bearing the burden of holding Moses' arms up all day long. It's a literal picture of what we have the opportunity to do as believers now for other believers in our life. The Lord wants to use others to help hold us up during the battles of life. We have to resist the urge and the temptation to try to go it alone and to try to face those things all by ourselves. Not only that, though, not only does he want to use others, we see the Lord also wants to be in the center of the battle. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're dealing with, God wants to be right there in the center. He wants to be the banner, to be rallied around and to receive strength from. All this imagery that we see here in the text is intentional. And it's meant for us today, too. That God is, in fact, our banner in the midst of those trials and struggles. He is who we rally around. And really, even as we're helping one another, God should be in the middle of all of that. Because that's where he wants to be. He wants to be in the center of those battles and to be a rallying point to rally around. Really a sign of victory. Because it is a picture and a sign of victory. It reminds us of the victory that Jesus Christ had over death. Through resurrection. And we can look to that and point to that as believers and say, that is strength. That is where we get our strength from. That is a resurrection that we will know one day. He wants to be in the center, our banner, our Jehovah Nissi. So as we look at this particular account and God giving his people the victory that day against Amalek, and we see that he tells Moses to make it, to write it down as a memorial of the victory that day that he is their banner and that he is our banner. What does that mean for us as his people today? Well, the first thing that we see that it means for us is that when the Lord is our banner, when he is our Jehovah Nissi, when he is our rallying point in the midst of our battles, we can find steadiness when we feel the most shaky and defeated. Because as you think about Moses and his arms being held up by Aaron and Hur, it tells us, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Maybe you feel like as you're experiencing the battles in your own life, that you just keep getting hit and knocked around hit from one side, hit from the other, maybe hit in the front or from behind. You feel like you're going down to the ground and picking yourself up. And then maybe, just maybe, someone comes into your life that comes underneath your arm, grabs you, helps you up, and holds you steady and says, I got you. I'm here for you. And that's what we can have when we don't isolate ourselves. We don't cut ourselves off from other people who want to be in our life and who want to support us and help us and lift us up to pray for us and to walk with us through those battles and those struggles and those trials. Those people are steadying people. They help us to walk steady when we're being hit by everything in life. But if we close them out and shut them out and cut them off and try to do it all on our own, we miss out on that benefit and blessing of being able to have others help steady us when we're being assaulted by Satan and the circumstances and trials and difficulties that we're experiencing. And sometimes God uses all of those to help us realize our need for other people. But we can find steadiness even in the midst of the craziest chaos we can imagine when we have others who are there with us to help hold our arms up as we do the second thing, and that is look toward the Lord as the banner for our victory. And no matter what we experience in life, when we know that the Lord is our banner and we look to Him, Even if our circumstances don't feel victorious, we can know a spiritual victory through our relationship with God. And even though those battles don't just go away, we can have a spiritual victory in the midst of those, as God helps us grow in the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, to know the fruit of the Spirit of long-suffering and patience and endurance and all of those things that we could not know if we didn't experience trials of various kinds as James tells us. We can have victory in our circumstances, but even if we don't, we can have victory in our faith life. Because when the Lord is our banner and he's in the midst, he brings the victory. So as we look at this account, we look at this text, and we look at the Lord as our banner, our rallying point. The picture, the symbol, the very presence of God in our lives we see, ultimately, that the Lord wants us to experience victory in life as our banner. He wants to be our banner. He wants to be our jehovah Missy. Go to bow your head and close your eyes with me as we reflect on the text. Seemingly simple message tonight, and yet some of those are often the, the most Meaningful and and things that we need the most. I want you to think about the battles in your life that you face right now. Whatever they are, are you trying to fight them alone? Are you trying to deal with whatever it is that is assaulting you by yourself? As you think about those battles and those trials, and maybe you have been trying to fight them alone, now I want you to think of some people that you have in your life that maybe are trying to help hold up your arms. I want you to choose to let them help you and to help hold you up, to hold your arms up as you look to the Lord and his presence in your life. Let other people help you and help hold you up. As Aaron and her did for Moses that day. Additionally, give the battle to the Lord. Whatever it is that you've been trying to do on your own, realize that the battle is ultimately his. We're told in 2 Chronicles, in another place where God tells his people, The battle is the Lord's, and it was the battle, his battle there in in Exodus, it's there in 2 Chronicles, it's there throughout Scripture. The battle is the Lord's. When he moves and calls and works in your life, those battles are his. Give it to him. Let his presence give you the strength that you need as, as others, as you and others rally around him for victory. Because again, when we talk and think in terms of the banner, it's not just us there at the banner, it's the other people in our life as well. And even now, begin preparing your heart as we together tonight, here and online, rally together around the communion table, a banner of sorts which symbolizes Jesus Christ's victory over the grave. And his resurrection in our lives so that we could have a relationship with God. We're getting ready to move into the communion table, a rallying point where the Lord is our banner of victory over death at the table. Father God, thank you so much for this account in Exodus. For the way you worked in the lives of your people and the things that you brought them through. The lessons that you taught them about who you are that we can see and learn from today. Thank you for being our banner, our rallying point for strength and victory in the battles that come our way. And I ask even now we begin preparing our hearts for this time of communion with one another, this time of communion at your table, a memorial of what you've done in our lives. And that's in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, you are our banner. Amen.